0: Welcome to the Wisdom of Madness with Rasuli and Jesh DeRox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. If someone asks from you to give them an organ of yourself, give me your eye,
1: give me your nose, give me your hand, what reaction would you have? I think it depends who asks, but my first reaction would probably be no. (laughs) No matter who asks,
0: wouldn't you say no? Are you out of your mind? You're asking me to give you my ear? You're asking me to give you my hand, right? But look, how many of us freely give our mind to people?
1: Hmm.
0: Freely, completely, we let them own it. Wow. Own our mind, which is probably our most valuable asset. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty poignant not that interesting? Yeah. A couple of nights ago, during my talk, I noticed that there were three women who were veiled, because they're Muslim. And in the middle of discussion, I noticed that one of them took her veil off. Mm-hmm. And from there on, she was just like everybody
1: else. You were describing the difference between love and worship. Right. And you asked them, you know, what's the difference? And so I was curious how you answered that. What, what is the difference between love and worship? If I say, I love you,
0: or I say, I worship you, do you feel a difference? Certainly. Which is?
1: I think the biggest one that stands out to me is love seems to be reciprocal. There seems to be a give and take and a receiving on both ends, whereas worship, at least in the traditional connotation, seems to be an elevation and a magnification of the other in the context of a debasement of the self, of the original sender, which I personally don't think is the deepest meaning of worship, but I think that's generally the connotation that worship has.
0: Obviously, worship is stronger than love. Worship is completely unconditional love can be adjusted i love you so if your nose is too big i i sort of adjust myself to it i love you so i adjust myself to accepting the things that are not in my standard but when you worship somebody you don't even see any shortcoming because you don't even see them. In worship, you don't see the physical form. Worship is an inner connection with the soul, with the spirit.
1: Yeah, I think you're tapping into what I feel is a deeper meaning of worship that I think is very well worth exploring. It's not the way worship is commonly used on earth, but I think that's probably to our detriment. You know, I, when I think of worship in that kind of a way, I think of devotion, you know, which, you know, you say love means this or love means that. And the problem is love means nine million things. That's one of the biggest problems with that word. It's, it's a nearly dead word just because it's been used for so many different things. Often when people say the word love, it doesn't come anything close to worship in the way that you're meaning worship. And I think on the deepest level of love, love includes what you speak of when you say worship.
0: What made this woman remove the veil was the story that I told them of how Rumi met Shams and what happened between the two of them. Mm. Now, as you know, Rumi was archbishop of Konya, something at the level of archbishop in the Islamic world. So it was like an ayatollah. And he was the leader, and he was well-educated in four languages, and he could speak well. So he had a lot of followers. And on Fridays, which is like Sundays for the Muslims, there was the Friday gathering in the mosque and prayer, just like we do it in the church on Sundays. And one Friday after Rumi had already done the sermon and as he was leaving from the mosque through the bazaar, crowd were following him. And as he walked through the bazaar, there was somebody coming the opposite direction. (laughs) And the person got closer and closer. When he came close to Rumi, Rumi realized that obviously he was not from town because he was not following him so he said you're a stranger where do you come from and the old man who was Shams said i come from love rumi being the ayatollah he said oh great you come in from mecca god's home and he said no i come from the heart Rumi felt like he doesn't understand and started going away and Shams stopped him and said, I have a question. (laughs) And Rumi said, what's the question? And he said, who was right, Muhammad or Bastami? Rumi said, I really don't know much about Bastami, but Muhammad was the prophet of God so anything that he said is right. And Shams asked, then why did Muhammad said, God, forgive me for not having recognized your greatness. And Bastami said, pray to my greatness. Now that was something that Rumi had to get into a deeper meaning of it pray to my greatness, is seeing yourself as the divine power. Is seeing the the universe as the skin of God, as the skin of divine power. Like a balloon and the air in it. Balloon is the skin of the air. Air is God that exists everywhere, outside the balloon and inside the balloon. Doesn't matter. So when you take the air out, you don't see any shape of air anymore, and the balloon gets buried six feet under. Mm -hmm. The recognition that the whole universe is face of God, is the skin of God, it makes you feel different about God. Everything is God. So... I have to have more respect for it. I have to worship it. The table is not just a table. It's
1: more than that. I used to tell this story back when I was uh, a photographer, primarily, to clients You know that were gonna have their pictures taken as a couple. When you're trying to express what the point of all that is, you know you can just say, we're gonna get your picture taken and people are like, "Eh, okay, and they're not very excited about it. But if you tell them why it's important to get their picture taken, the exact same process can take on an entirely different meaning and an entirely different value. And it was during that time, during those years of my life, when I really got to see firsthand how the very same things were of priceless value or of no value at all not based on the action itself, but based entirely on the people involved in the way that they saw it. Imagine you got into a really bitter argument with someone that you loved dearly. And you're so angry that you slam down the phone, you hang it up, shows you how old that story was because I talk about slamming a phone <laughs> <laughs> which these days is like <laughs> horrifying to all of us. No, the screen will break. You know? So I'm gonna have, have to update that, phone? that little story. What the phone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what the kids will be saying. Mm. What's a phone? <laughs> I just speak into my fingers, you know. You're so angry with this person that you hang up on them, you vigorously press the red button at the bottom of your screen passionately and um you know the last words are these angry kind of ugly words of separation and then if five minutes later you get a call and you know it says hello is this you know mr archer and you're like yes um is your wife named ann archer yes you better come down to the hospital right away there's been a terrible accident you know she's got her last few moments if you don't make it here soon you might not be able to say goodbye in person You definitely don't say, well, you should have heard the way that she talked to me five minutes ago. She can die alone and hang up on him. It's not what you do. No matter what the last conversation was, the second that you know that she's there in the hospital, you race, you throw down everything, you run red lights, you you do whatever you have to do. You run into the hospital, you run past guards, you do whatever you needed to do just to race in there to be there by that bedside, and the entire time you have a crystal clarity about how much that person is worth, about how beautiful they are, about how irreplaceable and priceless that they are. And you run into the room, you pull aside the curtain, and there's been some kind of mistake. It's a different Ann Archer. They just called the wrong Mr. Archer. But even though it's the wrong woman there on the bed, you don't pick up the argument where you left it off. The argument is gone argument has dissolved into nothingness and you call up the still alive Ann Archer and you just say I love you you are precious to me I'm so sorry I was a stupid idiot I'm taking you out we're going to the mountains it's just you and me and the whole concept that that entire thing just exists in the mind they're this horrible person you can't even talk to or they're precious beyond precious and We need to go. The fact that the difference between those two very same physical beings is entirely having to do with the way that you see those beings is really profound and extraordinary when you really get into it because we buy into the stories that we're fed most of the time. We buy into our own stories about how horrible the person is or how great they are, whichever way. They're stories. And we forget a lot of the time that subconsciously or consciously at the center of us there's the one who is writing the stories and creating the stories. And coming from that place, connecting with that place, that's a godlike power. That is a godlike power to be the one naming all of these things. And most of the time, we are not in connection with our godlike power. So we're more in that, you know, like Muhammad was saying, that I did not see your greatness. You know, wife, forgive me that I I called you this stupid thing and I forgot how precious that you were. You know, and then you have the other, this Bastami, who says, pray to my greatness. You know, f- for me, that's the one that's in recognition of, I am the author of greatness. All greatness comes from the center of me, as all horribleness does. <laughs> Both of those two things coming from the same source. And we humans get in these loops where we just become subject in, in slavery to these stories, you know, and then completely set aside our own deep divine royal nature.
0: Look at another metaphoric aspects of it. Now, the first time that you're in argument with your wife, if somebody checks your heart to find out how much love there is in it, it's pretty much different from the time that you hear that she's been in an accident and she's going to be depart from this world. they are completely two different levels of love inside the heart. The first one has to do with havingness. I have that, so I'm not worrying about it. Mm. The second one reminds you that I was not really appreciating it. Mm. And she's going now. She's going to be gone. The idea of love develops in the second one, not in the first one. In the first one, reduces love. Mm. In the second one, it increases love, which means that in a way, love is a preparation, a process, and a satisfaction. Making love is preparation, process, satisfaction. That's the general approach of love. As we increase the satisfaction, we reduce the intensity of love. As you're more satisfied with your beloved, you reduce the intensity of your love for the beloved. In the preparation state, as you are longing for making love with your beloved, your love increases, which means longing is the developer of love, not satisfaction. Mm. And that's why Rumi Hafez, most of these mystics talk about longing being what I'm looking for, Mm. because longing is what intensifies love. Satisfaction is what reduces love. So the question comes, what do we do to keep our beloved happy and be with the beloved and not reduce love?
1: I think that's a really powerful question and one that we could explore in several different ways and I think it's important specifically with this one to make it practical you know in a way that that people can can edge into in their own lives and I think the first way that comes to me is this idea of redefining what physical and spiritual are because we throw around this word spiritual I was having a conversation this morning with a friend about what it means to be spiritual and be, people think, you know, that spiritual means you have to dress a certain way or know a certain word or something like that. Or I was making the joke earlier, you know, it's like, I'm spiritual now, so I call myself Rainbow Face. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like so what spiritual means, no offense to anyone actually called Rainbow Face. Um, physical means limited. It means finite. It means specific. And spiritual means infinite, unlimited boundless. And if we just look at physical and spiritual in such a practical way and kind of take out the religious trappings around those two words, you know, where physical is somehow abhorrent and spiritual is, ah, you know, if we, if we take out some of that trapping and we just look at the difference between form or formless, and then we apply that to this um, this uh, idea that we're talking about, How do we have a love that keeps on having longing at the same time as we have our love? Does this mean that we will constantly be forced to have to be bereaved again and again and again? And that seems to be the human experience is the ones who become the most loving are the ones who've been bereaved the most times. That's kind of a horrible fate, you know? And I think that is the physical way, that the physical teaches us. But there's a spiritual way to have longing at the same time as you are with the one that you love. And that is by recognizing not the physical nature of them, but the spiritual nature, which is to say the endless, infinite nature of them. Because if you were with your beloved, whether that be God or whether that be your your person, your partner or your child or whoever, whatever the beloved is, if you can look in their eyes and you can see that their eyes are just the beginning of them and in fact go an infinite distance on the inside, then you can have a never-ending sense of longing as you continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper with them because there will always be more to uncover. There will always be more to see. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that we make in relationship on a very practical level is in the beginning, you're looking at your partner and you're thinking, as you would say, wow, there's so much to learn about you. There's so much to do with you. There's so much to see about you. And then a year later or three years later, you're like, Yeah, I've seen it all. I've (laughs) done it all. There's nowhere else to really go with you. The longing goes, and as the longing goes, the love dies. And as the love dies, there's skeletons sitting and walking next to each other.
0: For me, the highest level of making love is to paint, Mm. to be in that zone of painting where I don't distinguish between myself and the canvas, Mm. being in that zone of unity, total unity with my canvas. That it takes late in the evenings for me as I get into midnight, some one, two, three o'clock. In the morning, I'm in that complete zone of oneness with my canvas and usually I paint with my fingers. When I'm doing these delicate bodies, I don't want the brush to touch it. (laughs) I want my finger to touch it. I just move them the same way as I'm Hmm. touching that body Mm -hmm. in reality. So that sensation carries through the, the, the painting. So for me, longing and satisfaction constantly takes place Mm. i long to see what comes through in the painting and i'm satisfied to see it coming through and i long to see what comes next through the painting and i'm satisfied to see wow that came through as well so that love making is endless continues forever because i long and i'm satisfied i'm long Mm. and i'm satisfied the satisfaction with the beloved, it freezes at the beloved, it dies. Yep. Satisfaction with the beloved should be in constant movement. Mm-hmm. It should be in constant flow. Mm-hmm. How we put it in the flow? By immediately longing for a new wave to come up. If you want your lovemaking the most exciting, you just continuously have to bring in new waves into your love making. And the same thing happens in every aspect of love. Love for God, love for your career, love for your car, love for mashed potatoes, whatever it is. The idea of being able to adjust yourself with the satisfaction and longing for that. Even with the bite, you take a bite of this mashed potato Mm. And you're satisfied with the taste of it. And then the next thing you're going to ask, let's see if there is another flavor in it that Mm -hmm. I didn't get it the first time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try it again. Maybe there's something else Mm -hmm. that I don't know. Even as simple as mashed potato (laughs) can expand your love while we somehow don't manage, don't recognize that love has to be expansive. Love cannot die on a canvas, on a composition of music, on a poem, yeah. on a food, on, on a nursing a child. It's way beyond this. It's got to be constantly moving, constantly moving. Then this whole idea of longing and satisfaction becomes the ocean waves that works together to give rhythm into your love and to be in love and make love in a rhythmic way is the greatest thing that could happen because then you're in the total flow of this movement that you're not aware of. Mm. And that's how we create.
1: That it's, yes, all of that in a sentence for me. Sorry, in a single word, is creativity. You know, and I don't think I've ever seen it as clearly as that. That this is why creativity is so powerful and important because it's physical and it's spiritual at the exact same time. It's the true merger of those two things. It's the union of the opposites. You know, and when you are creative, you are taking physical, finite form, and you're playing with it. You're you're adding in different dimensions to it. You're moving it. You're reshaping it. And that the importance. Of creativity it's not just something on the side you know that some people are creative and some people aren't that's just so ridiculous you know it it's literally the greatest gift that we were given is this ability to be creative and in the way that we're interacting with our loved ones with God and even with ourselves, probably most of all it is not creative a lot of the time you know most people are not truly in creative relationships so there's no longing. And what are they? They're bored. They're just bored. They're bored with God. They're bored with their partner. They're bored with themselves. And to be bored with something that's infinite is ludicrous, beyond ludicrous. And so it comes back to this same theme, you know, where Muhammad is crying out and he's saying, I'm sorry, I just, I lost it. I didn't see it. I forgot. David from the Bible, you know, he calls earth the land of forgetfulness and i think that's such an extraordinary thing to have called earth because it's just so easy to forget and i think creativity is this power that we have that is the godlike power god is the creator creativity is the godlike power that that moves the still you know that transforms the form that breaks it open and you know allows that flow that you're talking about to happen I look at you and me, even right here. How many thousands and thousands of sentences have we spoken to each other? Every time it's new. That's why there's so much love between us is because (laughs) we would be bored out of our minds if we came to all of our talks and said the same thing (laughs) that we said the last time and the time before. Every time we speak, my brain lights up because there's new things being heard, there's new things being shared. And so we have a constant love that just... Burns between us. And the way most people are in relationship, if they're really honest with themselves, a lot of it is not actually creative. And if a person just as simply as starts exploring how to be creative, even in the way that you say, I love you, you know, even in the way, like you say, that you eat mashed potatoes, society suggests there's one way to eat mashed potatoes. And we all know what it is. And we don't diverge from it, because if we do, we're going to be made fun of. But children will show you there is not one way to eat mashed potatoes. There are truly an infinite number of ways to eat mashed potatoes. And they are having a lot more fun doing it than we are. And in that way, they are much more spiritual in their practice of eating mashed potatoes than the rest of us are. You know, And as soon as you look at those mashed potatoes and you say, you know what? I've eaten mashed potatoes the same way for 10 years, for 30 years, I'm gonna do it different today. As soon as you do that, the power of creativity unlocks in you, you approach it from a different angle, you use a different utensil, as simple as using your pinky, you know, and if you try this tonight in your next meal, forget forks, forget spoons, forget knives, only use your pinky to eat. I can guarantee you that it's gonna be a fun event I can guarantee it's going to be a messy event. And I guarantee you there will be a love that comes out of your body as that happens. So this movement
0: of longing, satisfaction, is in a way what we call this series as Layla. Mm. So Layla, it's making, destroying, making, destroying longing, satisfaction, longing, satisfaction. The essence of creativity is that. The essence of developing a rhythm is that. The essence of heartbeat, which is the beginning of our life, is that.
1: Mm.
0: It's closing opening, closing opening. So this whole connection between the, the cup and the wine, which have nothing to do with each other, except that they're stuck to each other. Mm-hmm. Cup holds <laughs> the wine. Same thing happens with the body and the spirit. The body holds the spirit. It has nothing to do with it. Mm. When I'm drinking the wine, I could be just enjoying the wine, or I could be enjoying kissing the lip of the cup, too. Yes. As I begin to enjoy kissing the lip of the cup, even the wine tastes different. Yes. And you can begin to have that rhythm going as you drink the wine. That connection between the body and the spirit takes the same way. And the connection between the creativity and implementation is the same thing for an artist. You create totally in an innocent, fearless, free base, and then you put it into a form with total knowledge, experience, and everything using your talent. So as you work with your talent as the form, if you keep on changing, you're creating it. Mm-hmm. But if you just repeat it, repetition mm-hmm. brings weariness mm-hmm. and weariness is the biggest problem in life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this is really that union between the cup and the wine, union between the the skin and the inner being. That is the creative process. That is when the universe becomes the skin of God. Mm-hmm. So you, you shrink that universe to your own universe, your own world in here. In my case, it shrinks into my canvas.
1: Just like we assume there's one way to eat mashed potatoes, we basically assume there's one way to be a me. You know, a person. And we just tend to do the same kind of things. We tend to think similar kinds of thoughts. We tend to be gravitated towards similar kinds of things. Not as children. As children, we're wild explorers, touching everything, putting our mouth on everything, running into everything, smelling everything. That's the most creative time of our entire life for most people, you know, because of those practices. People say it's because of the development stage of their brain. I don't think so. I think it's because of those practices. Because if you take those same practices to an adult, they'll get just as creative as a kid was. I think the developmental stage of the brain helps kids to be in that state more easily, you know. And then as our brain develops in these more later stages, we get so filled up with information. We get so filled up with all of these stories about the way that things have to be. And that includes ourselves, you know. So, in that same way that we forget, as Mohammed forgot, even in something as simple as these mashed potatoes, we forget. Sometimes people can be eating their favorite meal, and it's literally like the meal of a king or of a queen. It's just divine. It's truly stunning by their favorite chef. And they can just be shoveling it into their mouth and not even know that they're eating it.
0: It becomes important if your mind is carrying that or your emotion is carrying that. It makes mm-hmm. a big difference. Certainly, yes. See? As I'm doing it, if I'm thinking that by doing it with my finger, I can do a better painting, then I ruin the whole thing Mm -hmm. because my mind is taking over the control. Yes. But when I'm doing it with my emotion, it just goes on, stays on. The emotion is a very important aspect of the art. When a singer sings a song, unless she feels that song, it's not about love making. It's a whole different thing, you know? Yep, exactly. The different emotion doesn't exist in it. It's a, it's a mechanical thing that takes place. So as an artist, it's really very important for us to let our emotion take over and control, but the problem is keeping the emotion constant because unless you put your emotion into motion, it dies off, gets into something else. What we need as artists to have is rhythm in order to turn our emotion into an expression. If we don't have rhythm, we cannot turn our emotion into an expression shift of emotion ruins everything into nothingness it makes it just die off completely so it's really valuable for us to keep our emotion constant as we create in and in order to keep our emotion constant we need to have a rhythm our own rhythm
1: i think for me when i hear you say all that and even when you're speaking about the rhythm you know what does that mean practically to somebody I feel like beauty, this is really where the role of beauty comes in because in the word beauty, there almost is embedded into it a sense of longing. Almost always, if not always, when we speak of beauty, we speak of longing. We we speak of something that we see that's exciting to us and we want it. We want it in our mouths. <laughs> we want it close to us. We want to have it. Beauty, as you've spoken to me before about it, is. There's an attraction, you know, and the very word attraction implies that there's some kind of a separation between you and this other thing. And that's not to say that you can't find beauty in yourself because you can. You can have an infinite attraction to yourself if you're doing it spiritually like we were talking about before where you recognize there are an infinite number of things that I could be and I'm attracted to all of the ones that I don't know yet. And so I move towards those and as I move towards those, it's kind of like the dog chasing his tail, who's endlessly fascinated with this piece Mm -hmm. of himself that he'll never truly, completely catch up to. And we watch dogs do that, and we're like, ha-ha, you're so stupid, you know? (laughs) Really, it's like, it's wise. It's wise beyond almost any other human thing I've ever heard that dogs can be endlessly fascinated with their own tail. Because they're not
0: looking for the end result. Dog is not about the end result. John Cage's Four Minute Symphony where on the stage you've got musicians sitting in there and the conductor starts the symphony and the musicians play, but you don't hear anything. As you're going through this four minutes of attending this symphony, at the beginning you think that there's something wrong with my ear. I see them, I see the conductor, I see the musicians playing, but I don't hear anything. So you look around you to see what happens with other people. Are they hearing <laughs> and you're not hearing? The first 10 to twenty second, this adjustment goes on. Then after twenty second, you begin to feel, well, what's going on in here? But since thought doesn't take you anywhere, it doesn't lead to something, you let your emotion take over. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking anymore as time goes by you start watching the musicians as they're playing you want to find out what is happening and you're trying to hear Mm. what they're playing from their movements so it just goes on until you begin to hear your own symphony in your own mind Then you have truly adjusted the movements of all the musicians with the symphony that is in your mind. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to the end of four-minute symphony, you have heard a symphony, which is purely something that you created in your mind. This whole adjustment that develops into a rhythm is very important for an artist to recognize there is... A rhythm that I have to find. Love is something that we develop a rhythm for it. For worship, the rhythm is constant. The rhythm is a universal rhythm. You cannot build a rhythm of your own in the worship. You got to accept that universal rhythm that exists. Love is challenging, but worship is not challenging. Worship is pure acceptance without any condition whatsoever. Worship does not allow adjustment.
1: For me, I keep wanting to see love as this massive suitcase that just can fit so many different things in it. It's such a big word. It's so heavy. It weighs so much. It means so many things to so many people. So from my way of seeing it, I see worship as a form of love, as a very, very high level form of love. Worship itself, isn't necessarily right or wrong or good or bad because it has a lot to do with what you're worshiping. Worship in this world has a lot to do with what we would call fanaticism. And so you can get people worshiping something with this exactly as you described, this complete commitment, no changes, just 100% passion towards this particular thing. But sometimes they're worshiping things that don't deserve their worship and are in fact quite less than their own divine infinite nature. People can worship ideas, They can worship stupid ideas, they can worship limiting ideas, they can worship ancient traditions that were based on maybe not horrible things, but sometimes just things that are too small for us. And so I think the object of your worship is a really, really important part of this whole conversation. But assuming for a moment that your object of worship is worthy of worship, God or the infinite, the eternal soul or or something like that. Assuming that, for me, worship means it's a very high level of love. So high has your rhythm grown in love. So deep is your power in love that you look at the face of the beloved, you look in the eyes of the beloved, and nothing else exists. Even in the middle of a storm, in the middle of hail, in the middle of a comet crashing right in front of you, you see nothing but the eyes of the beloved. That's at the point of worship, and as that, as you start entering into that stage of worship, the distance between you and the beloved closes. Love has grown from not just an idea or a concept or a I kinda like you or an affection. It has grown into a full run, a full steam ahead. I am charging towards you with every single atom in my entire body, with all my strength, with all my spirit, with all my heart. Diving straight in love is maybe you're looking how beautiful the water is off the ocean on a cliff and worship is You have already dove off and you are halfway down and there is no way back That's how full you're in it.
0: the beloved is gone love turns into a nostalgic process Mm. because it's the remembrance of the beloved that builds in it in a worship doesn't matter
1: Mm.
0: whether the beloved is there or is gone it's still constant the physical form of the beloved in a worship doesn't mean anything our biggest toughest worst worship is self-worshiping. Yeah. Hafiz says yeah. He says I became a worshiper of wine because I found that way I can destroy my self worshipping. Self love allows negotiation allows adjustment, allows changing of the rhythm. But self-worshipping does not. Mm-hmm. Self-worshipping is absolutely what I do is right, and I don't care what you say, mm-hmm. I don't care what science says, I don't care what the world says, yeah. I'm right. right. It's the same thing as worshipping somebody, whether they exist or not.
1: When I think of worship, it's moments where I'm completely lost. I'm in the middle of Layla, I'm neither made nor destroyed. I'm, I'm being both at the exact same time. So I'm in the process of movement. And I think one of the biggest differences between an early stage artist and a late stage artist is how quickly that they can get into a stage of worship with whatever it is that they're doing. Because in the beginning, you're trying to figure out what you're doing. You don't quite know how to use the brush. Every once in a while, something amazing happens and you get lost for a second. But then the brain comes back in you know, and says, oh, but what about this, and this isn't good enough, and this doesn't at all look like Michelangelo, who's your favorite, and I wonder what Michelangelo was like, and 20 other things that have nothing to do with worship, versus you get somebody who's at Rasulli's level, and if there was some machine that measured worship on how fast that it got into, I would bet within 30 seconds of entering the room, flicks on the music, pulls out his colors, poof, he's in worship. And so to me, it's a state that you learn how to get in more and more and more, and it's such an important state because no matter what it is you're doing, whether you're painting or whether you're singing or whether you're writing or whether you're making love with somebody or whether you're eating mashed potatoes, it doesn't really matter what the form is. What matters is that when you are in worship, yourselves are gone. You're just in a constant state of motion. You're both longing and you're receiving the thing that you long for at the exact same moment. And you become this strange, thing in space that's both matter and antimatter, that's both physical and spiritual and you become this anomaly from that space you change things you move things you are change you are literally the essence of creativity
0: because worship is about the oneness yes. total yeah. oneness and that's how
1: Layla leads yes. into worship as yes. you said that ties us right back to this original concept there's this mode that Muhammad was talking about which isn't necessarily a bad mode it's just it's a different one where he was praying he was saying God forgive me there's me over here there's you over there you know there's this duality whereas Bastami in that moment he was into the the unity there was no God somewhere else he was God he was so synced in in that moment people think that Worship is for God. Like, that's completely ridiculous. Some infinite being would need these tiny specks of dust to be like, You are great. You are amazing. <laughs> it's completely mind-numbing that anyone would think that God would need something like that. No, 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 no. Worship is for us. Worship is for us because as we speak into the truth of how beautiful and rich and powerful the infinite is, as we speak into those things, we become that which we speak. We fulfill the prophecy that we're speaking as we're saying it. You are great. You are great. You are beautiful. You are magnificent. You are stunning. And anyone who's ever fallen in love, deeply in love, can tell you that when you're looking at your beloved and you're telling them how beautiful they are and how incredible they are and how stunning they are and how thrilling they are, as you're saying that to them, your entire body is filled with beauty and with thrill, and with stunningness, and with every single thing that you're saying out to them, your body becomes that. And that, to me, is the power of worship. And you are worshiping in that way, you become that thing. To me, worship is a process of becoming, probably right at the apex of, of what creativity really is. It's like the crescendo for me, because when Rasuli is at the apex of this worship inside of his work, there's no paintbrush. There's no paint, there's no canvas, there's no finger, there's no man here. There's just a wild rush of Poseidon creating the sea. There's a wild rush of women taking form. There's a wild rush of colors merging and falling into each other, getting lost in each other, and rediscovering each other. And When you stand in front of one of his paintings, even years and years and years after he's painted it, you still feel that swirl and that rush. It's still still moving. It's still in process and you want to jump in and you want to dive in and get lost in it because it's there saying, I am lost. Come join me and be lost as I am lost right in this moment. And I think all of the great works of art do that. They're constant beckoning to say, come be lost. This is your destiny is to come be lost.
0: The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh DeRox, and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Our theme music is by Nicholas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community.